Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Hannah Critchlow and with Dave Ansell. Dave, you've been scanning the news this week. What have you got for us? Well, I saw a wonderful story. Scientists have managed to build a microscopic MRI, or pretty close to one. By measuring how atoms oscillate in the magnetic field, they've learned a huge amount of chemistry using something called nuclear magnetic resonance machines. And they've been adapted to form magnetic resonance imaging machines, or MRI machines, that allow doctors to study the soft parts of the body. These all work by using the way atoms oscillate in a magnetic field. This is very useful because the electrons around the atom and the electrons in the neighbouring atoms can all affect this so you can gain a huge amount of information chemically about what's going on and you can look right inside a body but the one problem is you can't really distinguish very very small objects but Shimon Kolokwitz um, from Harvard and colleagues are aiming at something rather better rather than using an atom as a magnetic resonator to measure the magnetic field they're using a mechanical resonator effectively a microscopic tuning fork um, with a tiny magnet on the end. And they mounted it on something called a magnetic force microscope, which scans this resonator across the surface with subatomic precision. So they actually know where this is to lessen the radius of an atom. The local magnetic field will affect the vibration of the resonator and they can measure it. And if it comes to an atom which is vibrating at a similar frequency, they can interact with one another. So they've used this machine to measure magnetic interactions with a single nitrogen atom inside diamond. So the diamond with a nitrogen atom where carbon should be, and they've actually managed to see this and they've managed to see the magnetic effects it has. Why were they looking at diamond? Is that because it's so, so regular and the odd atom that's not where it's supposed to be stands out like a sore thumb, so it makes it a very convenient thing to study simply? I think there's two things. One, it's a very, very smooth thing and you can see an individual atom and it, it stays still, it doesn't wander off. And the other one is this is essentially a single quantum mechanical system because the other really neat thing about this is they can interact with a single atom effectively, which is behaving as a quantum mechanical object. And so this could be really, really useful for things like quantum computing. So it's a way of getting information in and out of a quantum computer. So they're very, very early stages, but possibly they could be using this to build it into some kind of MRI scanner where you can actually scan atoms inside a single molecule or something, which would be absolutely incredible. Sounds amazing. Thank you, Dave. Hannah, what's been happening in the world of science in your neck of the woods? Well, there's been a fantastic uh, study published in the journal Neuron. So using certain computer games, it turns out, can improve the symptoms of schizophrenia and produce long-lasting benefits for patients. So schizophrenia affects 1% of the population and people with the condition develop hallucinations, so hearing sounds and voices that aren't really there and seeing things that don't exist in reality. They also develop delusions, which are false ideas, to help them to come to terms with these strange experiences. And together, these effects can destroy a person quality of life and their relationships with others. But now a team at the University of California, San Francisco, led by Karuna Sobraniam, have found that using specially written computer games that rely heavily on memory and also require players to intensively process auditory and visual information, including interpreting facial expressions, can produce significant improvements in the player's symptoms. 
The researchers compared a group of 31 schizophrenics and 16 healthy control individuals over a 16-week period. After a baseline brain scan of all the individuals, the schizophrenics were split randomly into two roughly equal groups, one of which played commercial computer games and the other spent the same amount of time, 80 hours, using the brain training software built by the researchers. And at the end of the study, the participants were reassessed using a range of behavioural and scanning-based methods. Compared with the individuals who played the commercial computer games, those that received the brain training treatment showed a significant improvement in their accuracy of information recall. This was mirrored by improved social functioning and an increase in activity in a brain region called the medial prefrontal cortex, which is concerned with planning and decision-making. I spoke to the study co-author, Sofia Vinogradov, about the implications of their findings. These data raise the exciting likelihood that the neural impairments in schizophrenia and undoubtedly other neuropsychiatric illnesses are not immutably fixed, but instead may be amenable to well-designed behavioral interventions that target specific restoration of neural system functioning. These findings may have far-reaching implications for helping to improve the quality of life for patients suffering from neuropsychiatric illness, not just from schizophrenia, but also other disorders characterized by impaired neural system functioning, such as autism and obsessive-compulsive disorder. Sofia Vinogradov, who published that study this week in the journal Neuron. Gosh, what an amazing story. Software for schizophrenia. Well, story of the week for me has to be this one, which comes from the Russian Academy of Sciences. It's published in the journal PNAS this week. The first author is Svetlana Yashina. She and her colleagues say that they have brought back to life a plant that hasn't grown on Earth for 30,000 years, or more precisely, 31,800 years, give or take 300 years, which is how old the carbon dating of the plant material they started from is. What they did was to go to northeastern Siberia, where 38 metres down in the permafrost they found some frozen squirrel burrows. And in those burrows were sequestered, what squirrels normally hide, seeds, fruits and nuts. And amongst them were some campion seeds. And they took these seeds away, they looked viable, and so they put them in nutrient broth in the laboratory and tried to grow them. Now, the seeds did show some signs of life, but rather like a slightly broken computer where you press the power button and it spins the fan up and starts the hard disks but won't quite boot, these seeds didn't quite get it together in terms of their germination. But in some cases, a structure called the placenta, which is the part of the plant that links the parent plant onto the newborn seed, that did show some signs of changing in the nutrient solution. So the researchers focused on these placental tissues and in the right conditions they managed to make them put out sprouts and roots and very quickly they were able to produce plants from them. And from those plants they got flowers and from those flowers they got pollen. They were able to cross-pollinate the plants and then produce seeds that were viable. So they've now got recreated and resuscitated in the laboratory species of this campion which haven't grown on earth for over 31,000 years and they do when grown side by side with the current form of the same species look subtly different. Now this is obviously an interesting breakthrough in its own right but it does tell us enormous amounts about how we preserve plant tissue. There are a number of initiatives around the world including one in Norway and others elsewhere where they are storing seeds from all of the plants that are currently living on earth so that if the worst comes to the worst and a species goes extinct we have this seed bank from which we can recreate the plant in future. So by studying this sort of thing and how this phenomenon came to be 
Researchers are hoping that they'll learn a lot more about how we can bring other plants back from the brink or back from the dead in future. It's well known that what you eat, drink or smoke during pregnancy can have long-term consequences for a developing baby. But now researchers at Cambridge University have discovered that a woman's diet, even before she becomes pregnant, can have lifelong genetic effects on her offspring. To explain why, here's the study author, Professor Nabil Afara. This uh, study is really a collaboration between uh, us and the Department of Pathology and Professor David Dunger and the Department of Paediatrics, together with um, Professor Andrew Prentice at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, who heads up the uh, MRC International Nutrition Unit. And it's a study that's based in the, the Gambia, where in rural Gambia there is a chronic shortage of food. And uh, superimposed upon that, you've got a seasonal variation in the food supply because the food that they eat is grown in the wet season, and that is called the hungry season. And then it is harvested in the dry season, and that's when food is plentiful. So you've got this nice natural variation in people being relatively well-fed and relatively less well-fed. That's so right. So you can compare the two. Exactly. And so um, what did you actually do with well, those people? What, what has been observed here is that with this seasonality, there is an impact on the incidence of infectious disease and mortality amongst young adults. Those born in the wet season die at a much younger age and have a much higher burden of infectious disease. So we wanted to ask the question whether exposures early in pregnancy or even at what we call the periconceptional period, that is, before a woman becomes pregnant until the time that pregnancy is confirmed, um, whether uh, supplementation of the diet, particularly for deficiencies, known deficiencies in micronutrients, has an impact on this uh, disease burden. So there could be two effects going on. One could be a genetic effect because of the woman becoming deficient in something before or around the time she gets pregnant and that could have a genetic legacy effect in the baby. The other is that the baby could just be exposed to an environment in which it's eating a relatively impoverished diet and that makes it more prone to getting things down the line. That's correct. So what we wanted to ask is whether the offspring of women who received the supplementation compared to women who received a placebo, that is exactly the same pill but without the cocktail of minerals and micronutrients, whether when we examined the DNA of, of the offspring of these women, there was any difference in the epigenetic state. What's important to understand here is that we're not actually looking for changes in the DNA sequence, but actually modifications uh, to the DNA that affect the activity of genes. This is where you get chemical markers, methyl groups, stuck onto the sides of genes that affect how well they get turned on or off. They're like a dimmer switch for genes, aren't they? Exactly. Methylation, as the process is called, it's adding a methyl group onto cytosine, one of the DNA bases, can affect the activity of the gene, but it's one of many epigenetic changes that can take place that modulate the activity of genes. And what appears to be the case is that once a state is set, this can be a long-term state that is set that may last for the life of the individual. So you've got 
these groups of women, recruited them into the study, randomised them to get either the placebo or the vitamin pills. How did you then follow up the offspring? Well, we uh, took blood at two stages, one at birth from cord blood, and therefore that is blood from, from the baby at term, and extracted DNA from that. We then followed that up with blood, peripheral blood, uh, from uh, some of the same children at nine months of age. And we then ran an assay that measures the state of methylation of all genes across the human genome. We were able to do this on a, on a DNA chip called a, a methylation chip. But essentially it allows you to compare the two states and ask whether there's a difference between the offspring whose mothers received the supplementation and those whose mothers did not receive the supplementation. And what did you find? And what we found was that the supplementation given in, uh, in an eight-week period right at the beginning of the pregnancy and before the pregnancy had an impact at term and that there was a difference in a relatively small number of genes in the newborn. But then at nine months, we found many more changes as well. So in a sense, there's a sort of programming going on early on, and early exposure is programming the genome to have a certain pattern of activity. You, um, you at this stage only know that those genes change their pattern. You don't know how that affects the expression, the amount of the genes that exactly. get made. But those genes presumably will give you enormous insights. There's a lot of avenues to follow now to ask, well, what do they do and how do they affect the health outcomes for these children? You've hit the button there in that this work has identified candidates that might be influencing important aspects of the physiology and may give us insights into the pathology that these individuals suffer from. And we need to go on and investigate precisely what those changes mean in terms of the activity of these genes. And to finish up... This is in individuals who are relatively impoverished in terms of their dietary intakes. Yes. What are the implications, though, for people who are eating a relatively good diet? Does this nonetheless say, well, be careful, because there may, if you have micronutrient deficiencies, there may be implications even if you think you're eating a good diet? This is highly relevant to our own society where food security is more assured. But overeating, exposures to for example, excessive carbohydrate, we know can bring about similar epigenetic changes and may also impact on health at a later stage in life. Diabetes, uh, for example, is a, a very good case in point. Uh, at present time, we're suffering a, an epidemic of diabetes. So it is important, even in societies where there is an abundant food supply, the appropriate balance of nutrients is the key thing here for normal development. Nabil, thank you very much. That's Professor Nabil Farah. He's from the Pathology Department at Cambridge University. And you can read the paper he published on that work in the journal Human Molecular Genetics. Nabil, thank you. And now bringing us up uh, with, to date with some more scientific highlights in this week, including the in vitro burger. Here's Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist Newsflash. The first lab-grown meat is being cooked up by scientists at Maastricht University. Presenting at the AAAS Science Meeting in Vancouver this week, Mark Post used stem cells from cows to grow strips of muscle tissue two centimetres in length. By combining 3,000 of these with strips of fat tissue also from stem cells, he hopes to make enough minced meat to make a quarter-pound hamburger by the end of the year. If proven to be feasible, the technique could alleviate the environmental burdens of current meat farming practices. The way meat is 
produced today has lots of problems. Livestock emits lots of greenhouse gases. They, of course, use lots of land and lots of food. One of the biggest problems is that we, in the coming 30 years, we will not have enough meat to feed the world population. So the idea is that in the lab, you have much more variables under control and you can make this process more efficient. And therefore, using the same resources, you can make much more meat. Recent claims of neutrinos travelling faster than the speed of light as part of the OPERA experiment may have been due to problems with equipment. In September, neutrinos were observed to be travelling 0.0025% faster than the speed of light between the CERN facility in Geneva and Grand Sasso Laboratory, 732 kilometres away in Italy. The team behind the experiment have since been checking how these potentially revolutionary results could have occurred and have now identified some flaws in their technique, as Alphonse Weber from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory comments. They found two effects. One of them is that there was a loose optical connection that carries their GPS timing signal underground. And then there was another effect where one of the clocks they were using or frequency counters, somehow their correction was different from what they originally thought. One of these effects could make the apparent travel time of the neutrinos longer and the other one shorter. And it's not clear which effect would dominate, uh, but they will affect the measurement. This newest information puts very much in doubt that they had a real effect. The tricks used by botulinum neurotoxins to protect themselves as they move through the human body have been revealed by scientists at the Sanford Burnham Medical Research Institute. Although commonly used as a cosmetic due to its ability to paralyse muscle, this poisonous toxin can cause severe illness and paralysis if inhaled or ingested. Using X-ray crystallography, Rongsheng Jin identified the presence of a bodyguard protein, which binds to and protects the toxin as it passes through the harsh environment of the gut and then breaks free, allowing the toxin to enter the bloodstream. We now want to develop small molecules which can uh, mimic the signal which trigger the dissociation of the toxin and its bodyguard. They will break up this tight toxin bodyguard complex in stomach. Then we can use our own defense system in the stomach, like low pH and digestive proteins, to kill the toxin before it could even uh, penetrate the intestine. And by doing so, we will have a, a new strategy to fight these toxins. And finally, it seems fish have a sweet smell for fear. When fish such as zebrafish are injured, they're known to release chemicals signalling for the rest of their shoal to escape in fear. Suresh Jesudarsan and colleagues from the National University of Singapore have now found the crucial component of this signal to be the sugar chondroitin sulfate, found in fish skin. It's thought the sugar is broken down by enzymes activated during injury, releasing the sugar fragments into the surrounding environment. When the chondroitin sulfate fragments are released, they bind to the olfactory sensory neurons in the other fish, which then triggers a signal to the olfactory bulb, and this subsequently activates various fear centers within the brain. There's one very curious aspect about the alarm response, which is that it's concentration-dependent. So we have a little bit of it, you have a mild fear response, and if you have a lot, you have a strong fear response. This is very unusual for any odorant, so this is a good way to see how you can induce different fear states.
And the paper is published this week in the journal Current Biology. Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist News Flash and all those stories, including the ones you heard earlier in the programme, as well as their references, can be found on our website at nakedscientists.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.